everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Welcome back, everybody. It is Brandon Odo back here with Brian. Hey, everybody. We continue on our our streak, our marathon, our journey, uh, exploring surgical critical care. When will it stop? We don't know. But there's so much to look into here that we've probably neglected, including all of the different specialty surgeries that often land in, in ICUs if you're at a place who does these types of procedures. So what we wanted to explore today is uh, the head and neck. We have uh, Dr. Alex Keckner here, who is a, a otolaryngolo- otolaryngologist. Gosh, that's our first challenge. I'm going to say an ENT. <laughs> uh, but she uh, does a lot of, of these types of procedures, um, including some really specialized stuff, transoral robotic procedures, reconstruction, uh, microvascular free tissue transfers, salivary neoplasms, siloendoscopic kinds of things. These kinds of procedures, which on one hand, I think are kind of mysterious to those of us who don't do them, uh, but also things that often require post-op ICU care and have some really particular considerations. So we're going to try to explore that, um, and Brian's going to help us out here. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. So I think... um, our audience is probably going to be largely unfamiliar with the types of surgeries we're talking about. And even honestly, those of us who see them a lot in the ICU, you know, when I train new folks on our service, they ask, you know, well, what, what do I need to know about flaps, right? That's what we just, mm-hmm. we call every, everything that you guys do is a flap uh, for us. <laughs> That's a lot of what and, we do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, basically it's, uh, I don't know, we sort of, we sort of babysit the ventilator and we let them know if things look funky. Uh, and so let's talk about some of the funky things and what we need to know, but let's kind of back up before we get going. Um, again, most of us are critical care folks. We don't really have a good idea of what happens prior to the, uh, to the ICU. So we're talking about for the most part with a lot of these procedures, some sort of head and neck cancer, right? Head and neck cancer is, um, I won't say it's a rare cancer, but it's definitely not as common as things like breast or prostate and things like that. And so um, a lot of what I focus on are the area, kind of the aerodigestive tract. So if you think about the skin of the mouth, the nose, um, the throat, everything like that. And roughly about 65,000 to 70,000 people will have some type of a head and neck cancer um, in the United States yearly. And um, the interesting one that we've been seeing over the last 30-some years is actually an increase in patients who have HPV or human papillomavirus-related cancers of the head and neck. Um, the the kind of cool thing is it it does tend to respond really well to treatment. And so we have options for patients now that we didn't really have before. And so um, kind of looking at that patient population, because we've we've got a whole slew of them, even though it's a small real estate, there's a lot going on in there. And so, you know, we call it head and neck and and I've, I've heard people go, like head and neck, that's like, are you like a foot and ankle doctor? I'm like, what well, head and neck has, you know, we've got the sinuses, you've got the oral cavity, you've got the oropharynx, you've got the hypopharynx, you've got the larynx. And so all of these things are areas that we treat. Um, so like I said, when we're looking at things, uh, and I guess what we can do is sort of start from the, the smallest to the biggest, and that way we can kind of get to the exciting stuff near the end. Um, but it, so in the, in the, in the oral cavity and the oropharynx area, um, 
some of the options that we have from a treatment standpoint in the surgery realm, one of the neat ones that's come down the pike has uh, been transoral robotic surgery. And so um, really what this robot is, it's not that we set it and forget it where the robot goes in and does all of its work and we facilitate the robot takeover, but, um, but it's actually a surgeon-controlled robot. And so it looks a little bit like Wally, so it has these little this little tube that comes out with two eyes, and those eyes actually correspond to the eyes that are inside of the surgeon console, and um, so it gives me three D high definition view of all of the oral cavity and oral pharynx, and then it has these five millimeter hands that I can use to uh, take tumors out. So when we're considering patients for that kind of surgery, there are a few things that we look at. So one, are they a surgical candidate? Um, and that part actually does fit a lot into the critical care part. Like, are they going to be safe enough to undergo an anesthetic and postoperatively? And what does that, that look like for them? And, you know, are they, do they have to be on um, any type of blood thinner postoperatively? What kind of cardiac risk and airway risk are they? And so part of their workup when they come in is first we assess them to see, one, is it, is it surgically resectable in a way that will preserve function so that afterwards they can do what they want to do again, which is eating, drinking, talking, walking, you know, playing pickleball, whatever the new thing is. Um, and, and oncologically, is it sound? Are we going to be doing a, a job that will get their cancer adequately treated while reducing the morbidity and not having to do, you know, chemotherapy in addition to radiation, that kind of thing. So they come in, we assess them, and then usually we'll have them assessed with the preoperative clinic. And then they come in um, and we put them off to sleep put the, open up everything. And it literally looks like something out of saw. <laughs> it's like this big mouth crank that just pops everything open. And this robot is like a little, um, like a little snake. It kind of comes around the corner, gets into position. And then the two little arms come out in, into place. I know I'm doing like hand motions. No one can see, but anyway. Um, and, uh, and then we can actually get really nice, uh, view of that area. Now, one of the kind of um, caveats to all of that is that anytime we're operating in the oropharynx, so that's the back of the tongue, the tonsils, the palate, um, and parts of the hypopharynx, um, those are all areas that are near the airway and they can swell. And so postoperatively, really, that's the area that has this, um, this potential risk and the need for really close monitoring postoperatively. One of the things that we do to prevent what's called, called like a catastrophic bleed um, is to actually tie off the blood supply to the tumor before we actually take it out. And so what that does is it actually prevents, like I said, what it's called a catastrophic bleed, meaning one that is potentially life-threatening. You can still have a little bit of like an oozing area or something like that. But what we've seen is um, over the last few years after implementing that change, which really takes all of 15 minutes in the neck, um, that that really has decreased the morbidity, mortality for this kind of surgery. And then the other part is airway. So you can have quite a bit of swelling afterwards. And so these patients uh, will sometimes stay intubated overnight and usually the following day with a little bit of steroids and time, that tongue swelling goes down and we can take the tube out. Um, and so those are usually, hopefully, the easy ones for the critical care standpoint. We kind of send them over to you, let them kind of just rest on a ventilator overnight, do a little cuff leak afterward, um, and then get the tube out. Um, and, you know, that th those usually are, you know, one night there, maybe a couple nights in the rest of the, the regular hospital, and then we can get them home. So, um, so that's kind of the, the oropharyngeal side. In addition to that, we take out lymph nodes and, and things like that. Um, 
so that's sort of the, like I said, for the, from the smaller side of, of, of that kind of surgery. And the kind of general critical care need in that phenotype is usually monitoring the airway in case there's swelling or bleeding for a little while post-op, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes we'll have un- unmasked some fun things. So, you know, I've definitely had patients where we have diagnosed their, you know, bradycardia or their AFib or something like that. And that's when the surgeons are usually like, hey, can where, can I find a doctor or doctor or a critical carrier person? Then <laughs> how many amlodipines or something like that, right? Um, and so, yeah, but usually those are those are the nice kind of like a little bit of a set it and forget it kind of uh, kind of thing. Um, other patients that we'll see kind of going up the the level on um, sort of more in, involved things. So when we start resecting things that can't heal in by secondary intention, meaning you can leave it open and it sort of just heals from the inside out, um, but are actually requiring some type of a reconstruction. So that's where we talk about free flaps. And so for those who aren't familiar, free flaps are essentially using tissue from this uh, person, same, this same person's body, um, but they're remotely harvested. So either tissue from the leg or from the arm, from the um, latissimus. So that tissue is actually harvested with an artery and a vein. And so then that tissue is then moved into the area that is being reconstructed. And those blood vessels are then attached to blood vessels in the neck in order to give them vascularity. And so it's, it's kind of like magic every time. It's like, how is that possibly going to work to get this you know, huge chunk of muscle to be alive with these three millimeter vessels? And magically 95 to 97% of the time, it, it, it does that. Um, and so this is a little bit more nuanced in that, you know, we are kind of relying on the body to perfuse that area. So previously, um, there was a lot of angst and anguish regarding vasopressors for these patients because, you know, you've got these two little blood vessels that are feeding this large piece of tissue. And then in some cases, even smaller vessels that are then feeding another layer of skin. And so it's interesting, actually, over the last couple of years, um, there's been some really big digging into that topic. And multiple meta-analyses have been performed, as well as some prospective trials. And what we've found is that, and I was guilty of this, too, because I was like, don't, don't, give me, don't give my patients any pressors. I don't want, it, don't want it to hurt anything. Um, but what we found is that, actually, for patients who are undergoing free flap reconstruction, vasopressors actually can improve the outcome overall and decrease hospital stay. So um, now certainly I think we all have our, you know, our anecdata about, well, I saw this guy one time get vasopressin and I watched the flap just die on the table. So that's, that's probably the one that I still kind of ask gently not to use that one and please use any other one if possible. Um, but it certainly has been a change in how I practice. And what we found is that in addition to that, um, the fluid requirements are down quite a bit. And so these patients lose less blood, they get less edema, decreases their pulmonary edema. And so that, from a critical care standpoint, from what I understand, pulmonary edema is not great. Um, and so oftentimes you have to diurese those patients. And then if their kidney function is already not great, then you're looking at that. And so, um, you know, the, the, a single pressure is not going to be the make or break for the, for the free flap itself. Um, now granted, you know, if the patient's on three pressors, that's typically more indicative of the fact that the patient, the, the protoplasm of that patient is probably not doing well. And, and that 
probably will inform how the free flap does. So I, I think some of the older papers were looking at patients who were really sick, getting lots of pressures, and then, then the free flap was compromised. But if you look at kind of the overall cohort, and um, I have a couple of papers, and I put those, um, that were looking at, like I said, meta-analyses, and then there were a few actually prospective trials. There's one out of Emory. I'm looking at, you know, can you do it? And you can. Um, and so, like I said, it's hard to change surgeons' minds, but, you know, when you have the data there, it is, it is actually quite compelling. And so if you can decrease the amount of blood, if you can reduce the amount of fluid, um, because edema can also kill a flap. So um, those are some things that, that, are, that are good to know. And then the other kind of neat one, um, I think they're going to be hopefully presenting it at the upcoming meeting. They did a poster on it. Um, was looking at transic, uh, tranexamic acid uh, intraoperatively for free flaps and found that there was no increase in thrombotic events, no issues with free flap compromise, and there was a decreased amount of transfusion and blood loss. Um, so um, tranexamic acid, uh, we've used it before for, you know, nosebleeds and for, you know, oral cavity bleeds and things like that. Um, but using it intravenously um, has been more of the, tra- I think, in the trauma literature and like ortho literature and things like that. And so, you know, when we're doing a fibula flap, we're breaking a fib, we're breaking a leg bone, breaking a jaw bone and putting them back together again, which is essentially like orthopedic surgery, just on a smaller scale. And, um, and so that's where this sort of, um, this idea to use the, the TXA in those settings, um, can be kind of helpful to decrease the amount of blood loss. And so I, it was nice. I'm glad when someone else does the, the, the part where they check to see if it causes their free flaps to, to clot off. Cause I'd want, I, I don't want to have to try that. Um, so it's good to see you when other people are doing those trials. Um, and, and so this is a really promising thing for, for our patients, for sure. So you mentioned um, the robotic uh, operation. Mm-hmm. So I assume that's sort of more minimally invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, Because I know one of the big issues with a lot of these surgeries is that they are, you know, I mean, all surgeries leave scarring. All surgeries mm-hmm. have you know, incisional marks and some at least temporary deformity or whatever. But a lot of the, most of the stuff you're doing is right there on the face and the neck where mm-hmm. it's hard to hide, right? It's not like I can just keep my shirt on at the beach and you don't see my sternotomy scar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would assume that more minimally invasive is better cosmetically as well. Yes. So, um, so a lot of what we do, so we still do a little neck incision, usually about five, seven, five to seven centimeters on the neck. But everything else is through the mouth, and so uh, it's it's minimally invasive but maximally uh, removal. So <laughs> when you look back there, so if you were like to take a tongue blade and look in the back of the throat, it's like wow, that's a lot of stuff that got taken out. But yeah, everything is through the mouth. It used to be you had to do almost like a predator style, where you come through the jaw and plop everything open. You have to put a plate on that kind of thing. And so it was a really big paradigm shift because what happened was you know. Before we had really good data on it, we were doing surgery for pretty much all head and neck cancers, and we were doing really aggressive surgery. So if you look at the sort of the Halsteadian principles of surgery, it was on block. You just take the, you draw a circle around it, and you take everything out. And so in the neck, um, we have slowly moved over the last um, 50 years to the more functional or selective neck dissection. And I anticipate we're going to move even to smaller things like sentinel node. Um, because what we're seeing is that, especially for the HPV related ones, it's usually like one or two nodes. It's not all of the nodes that we were seeing before. Um, but even so again, smaller neck incision. Um, and so then the, the part with addressing the primary was, like I said, before you had to almost just 
really just flay everything open. Once we saw that patients responded really well to chemo radiation, um, there was a big paradigm shift from surgery to just radiation and chemotherapy. Um, but then uh, Neil Hochstein, who was actually a, um, an anti-resident at University of Pennsylvania, saw a surgical robot being used for, I think it was a uro urologic procedure or something. And he was like, hey, we could probably stick that in the mouth. And so that really turned our ability to do surgery in that area on its head. And um, so patients who couldn't tolerate chemotherapy or, you know, were having trouble getting to radiation suddenly had this other option or the second option to really do this. And so um, morbidity-wise, it really, it really decreased that. And so now the funny thing is, you know, you hear the um, the radiation oncologist being like, well, ours is even, like, you're still, the, the neck dissection part is the part that's super morbid or like, oh, the pat, and so we got to radiate them. But the, the neat thing though is that the patients have options, which for a lot of cancers, we don't really have that, you know, this is a time where you can say, well, you know, here are the morbidity for this versus this. You can try either one with the outcomes being fairly similar. Um, and so, you know, it, it is, it is a really nice thing to be able to offer to people. So you mentioned a little bit about sort of assessing, you know, if the patient's amenable to robotic versus something else. Let's say you were dealing with a, a bigger, more aggressive cancer. Mm -hmm. We see these a lot uh, in Kentucky with, with mandibular oh, yeah. <laughs> cancer and, uh, you know, from a lot of tobacco use, mm -hmm. you're going to have to do some really aggressive neck dissection, maybe like you said, mandibular flaps, uh, where you're taking bone from the leg and replacing it into the jaw. And, uh, you know, this is pretty involved stuff. You're in the OR for a while. Um, mm -hmm, if, mm -hmm. if people aren't familiar with these cases, they are not quick cases. Um, what walk us through a little bit mm -hmm. without getting too much into the weeds of the OR, but walk us through what exactly is going on for the you know fourteen hours or whatever that yeah, you're in the yeah. room. So so usually patients will come in, um, and for the most part, we usually will put a trach tube in these folks because if you're operating in the mouth, um, it just get kind of gets in the way. And also postoperatively, from a swelling standpoint, we want patients to feel comfortable and be able to get up and start walking right away. So we want to avoid prolonged intubation if we can, um, especially since they're already going to be, you know, asleep on a ventilator for at least a day, right, in the, in the operating room. Um, so they come into the operating room, we usually will start with a a trach tube. If they don't already have feeding access, we usually also give them a, a peg tube or um, a nasogastric tube at the end. Um, and then what we usually will start with is we have a head neck team that does the extirpation, meaning the cutting out the tumor part. And at the same time, we actually have a reconstructive team who's working on the other donor site. So that way it's kind of like NASCAR. You got one guy taking the wheels off, the other guy getting the wheels on. So that way we can have like, you know, going to town, um, and to hopefully decrease the amount. So, you know, we can sometimes get it down to like six hours, um, but depending a, a lot on, on, um, how we do it. So, um, sort of the kind of, I won't say old school, but kind of the, you know, bread and butter mandibulectomy, um, usually what will happen is we'll go in and do our mucosal margins. And so, Whenever there's a tumor inside of the mouth, we want to make sure that any of the margins that we're taking on the skin inside of the mouth are clean. And what that does is it helps give our reconstructive surgeon the amount of skin that they have to take from the donor site. So for instance, if we've got, you know, like a floor of mouth tumor, that's four or five centimeters of, you know, red bumpy cancer, we want to take a one centimeter margin around all of that. And then, so that all comes out as one piece. 
And then we take margins and those go to the lab to, um, to be evaluated. Once those are back, then we're able to have our reconstructive surgeon kind of get started on that portion. While they're doing that, we then go in and actually lift the hood up. So go on into the neck, incise the skin, lift everything up and over the mandible to expose it whilst preserving as many uh, uninvolved nerves as possible. So for instance, nerves that go to the lower lip, the nerve that goes to the tongue, um, sensory nerves as well. So um, once we expose the mandible, then we outline our cuts. So one of the kind of neat things that has also come up over the last few years is something that's called virtual surgical planning. And so before we even get into the operating room, we've already planned our cuts with an engineer. And so in some cases, we'll actually have a little cutting jig, just like you would have for woodworking. And you put the cutting jig on, you screw it on, and then you make the cuts. Because we've already planned the cuts, you know, two weeks before, and we know exactly what size is coming out. And the neat thing is, because we've done that, our reconstructive surgeon also has a cutting jig that then can match up. So, for instance, when I'm doing a, re a reconstruction, um, once the resecting surgeon, the person who's taking the tumor out, gives me the green light, like, yep, we don't have to take anything extra. It matches up just nicely like we planned. I go ahead and put my cutting jig on and make the cuts. The other cool thing, too, um, that we can do is actually put dental implants in as well. And those can also be designed on the cutting guide. So you'll have the, the reconstructing surgeon is on the leg, making the cuts, puts the implants in. And then once the tumor is out up top, then we can put it all together again. Um, so, but we'll kind of rewind. Um, so once we've got the cutting guide on, we make the cuts, make sure everything looks clear, sample the marrow, make sure that there's nothing infiltrating into the marrow and take all the lymph nodes out in the draining basins. So for instance, if everything is on the, the left-hand side of the jaw, then we usually will take out the left-sided lymph nodes. And those are kind of made into stations. You've got level one through four, and then there's a fifth level in the very back. But typically we'll take out levels one through three or one through four. Um, and what that is, if you, my, my food analogies, if you think about it like chocolate chip cookie dough, the lympho, uh, lymphatic tissue is mixing with fiber fatty tissue. So the cookie dough is the fat, the chocolate chips are the lymph nodes. So we take out the whole dough together and those lymph nodes are kind of hidden inside. Um, and so that goes off to the pathologist as one big chunk and they actually have to pick out the, the lymph nodes to evaluate them. So we don't get information that day for those. We do get information on the primary site. Um, so once all of that's cleaned out, everything is dry, there's no bleeding, we make sure any large vessels are tied off, that all the nerves are intact where they need to be. Um, then what usually we'll do is prepare the blood vessels for receipt of that new free flap. And so you have to have a good-sized artery and a good-sized vein. In some patients who've had prior surgery or prior radiation, that can be probably one of the hardest parts because um, if you've ever seen someone who's had radiation, their necks are just like a block of wood. And um, it's like trying to call water from stone. So in, in those cases, sometimes we actually have to go to the other side of the neck. And so that adds a little bit more time. So anytime we're adding an extra piece, that's another, you know, hour or so that we're adding. Um, once we have something that's got good caliber and pressure. So one of the tests I'll do is once I've found an artery that I like, I'll release a, I'll cut it, release a clamp on it. And then if it can squirt across the room, I know it's going to feed my free flap. And then it's um, and so once that's ready um, and the margins are clear, we've got all of our cuts on, our cuts done. Then what we'll do is give the green light to, if it's me, then the me, or if it's a different reconstructive surgeon, then 
and we harvest the flap. So um, we basically tie off the artery and vein in the leg, cut that, bring it up to the jaw. And then because we've had, we have those pre-made cuts, those pre-planned cuts, we can make those so that they fit exactly to the jaw. Um, and, you know, with the idea that once this patient is healed, we'll get them dental implants, they'll be able to have full set of teeth. Um, once everything's set into place, we tie the blood vessels together. And so um, for those not familiar with microsurgery or sutures, we use what's called an 80 nylon to stitch the vessels together. So if you look at like an A-line kit, um, I believe that's a 2-0 silk or is either a zero or a 2-0 silk, I believe. So you can imagine that an 80 nylon is like a hair. Um, and so typically I do that with um, magnification. So um, I have a face microscope basically that I use. That's um, their surgical loops that are four and a half X uh, magnification. So that allows us to really be able to um, see everything clearly and that kind of thing. The other really neat tool we have to put the veins together is they look, they look like two little inner tubes with spikes on them. So you actually bring the vein through like a little sausage, put them onto the spikes on each side, and then they come together interlocking, and then they're done. Um, and so once that's all together, we release the clamps, look for blood flow, make sure that the, the tissue is bleeding happily. And then we do the fun part, which is the other part that has to be monitored fairly frequently. And this is another one of the other reasons we, we um, uh, ask the favors of our ICU team, because we put what, uh, what's called an implantable monitor. And so there are two different kinds. Um, one of them is an implantable Doppler. And so it is a tiny, tiny Doppler that actually gets wrapped around the blood vessels and then gives an audible signal so that we know that the um, anastomosis is flowing. Um, in addition to that, you can, you can also visualize a lot of times the flap. You can look in the mouth, see, oh, there's skin. Is it bleeding? Is it pink? Does it have cap refill? That kind of thing. Um, and in some cases, we also will use something called a vioptics or a near-infrared um, spectroscopy device. So it's a little red, little laser that shoots down into the tissue and then gives a percentage of oxygenated to deoxygenated hemoglobin. And, um, and so that one actually gives a numeric value so that nursing and um, critical care can actually see a number on the screen. So um, once we are happy with all of that, everything gets closed up. Um, patient either gets a nasogastric tube if they don't have one. Um, trach tube gets uh, put in um, or exchanged for a, a cuffed tube. And then we get them transported over to the ICU. Um, so then that's really the most critical part is this first 72 hours. So the first day, usually we monitor them once every hour to make sure that the anastomosis is patent, that everything's looking good, that, that there's no bleeding or infection. Um, and so on those, we, we tend to use uh, nursing hourly checks followed by physician checks throughout the day. Um, and then uh, if there is a change in the signal or in the, you know, the e examination, then the, those are patients that have to go back to the operating room to revise the anastomosis or there's a bleeding or something like that. Um, usually one night in the ICU um, for those patients, unless they have some other type of, you know, critical care needs. And that does happen because a lot of these patients that are undergoing these larger operations do tend to have a lot of comorbidity. So we'll see a lot of like, um, you know, uh, cardiac disease, cardiovascular disease, um, emphysema, because a lot of these are smoking-related cancers. Um, certainly, we've had our share of, of patients with, um, you know, 
hepatic issues as well. So you know, th- these are long surgeries that sort of can unmask some of the issues um, that really come up. You know, like I said, AFib, um, hypotension, bradycardia. Um, the other one that we'll do sometimes too is a laryngectomy. And so laryngectomy is one where literally removing the, the the larynx, the voice box, and then reconnecting the airway to the skin and then connecting the mouth to the neopharynx and esophagus. And so in those patients, their airway is completely through the neck. Um, and so that's one that we have to really communicate with uh, everyone involved because if you try to intubate them through the mouth, you're not getting anywhere. Um, and because it's their only airway, if it gets clogged or they get a mucus plug, that can be really a dangerous situation. So um, that's one of those that we usually will also send to the ICU for, you know, suctioning needs and monitoring of airway, that kind of thing. It's late in the day. You come into the ICU. Um, you're setting up all your stuff. What, other than the typical sort of things that we would expect with any new admission or any post-op patient in general, are there any sort of standard orders that you would put in that are kind of unique to this sort of patient? Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, one of the things that we usually will do from a standardization protocol, so um, the post-op anticoagulation kind of depends on what we see in the operating room, but for the most part, most patients will get on prophylactic Lovenox and a baby aspirin, and that's it. Um, but intraoperatively, if there were some type of a thrombotic event or if we were concerned that the anastomosis took more than one try, sometimes we will start them on a heparin drip, like a low-dose a low heparin drip, uh, maintaining the anti-10A kind of, I think, 0.5 um, if possible. And then um, also typically I'll put patients on three doses of Decadron. Um, part of that is for swelling, but also I think some of these these patients, especially if they're a little bit sicker, may be slightly, um, you know, a little bit like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I think when you give someone hydrocortisone 100 because they're adrenally insufficient. Adrenally Thank insufficient. you. Yeah. yeah. My coffee needs to kick in. But that's one thing that I've found kind of helps sometimes also with blood pressures and things like that. Um, but a lot of it was with swelling too. We usually will do 72 hours of antibiotics. Um, as well as just mouth care. So um, typically rinsing with either Peridex or salt and soda rinses to kind of keep the, maintain, you know, the mouth clean because the mouth is not a very, very clean place. Um, And then uh, from pain management, try to do multimodal kind of pain regimen for these patients because not only sometimes have we broken their jaw, we've also broken their leg, we've taken a skin graft. Um, And so um, things like, you know, uh, gabapentin, typical opioids, Tylenol, um, and then also, you know, consideration for things like, um, like, uh, COX-2 inhibition to see if that there's some things that we can help with from a pain management standpoint. Um, and other than that, I think those are kind of the main ones. Um, then with, with regards to the, the orders, I said, we do Q1 hour flap checks. And so that's looking at the flap, checking for, um, swelling or for turgor for cap refill and then also listening to the um the flat monitors that we have all right so um you're getting them settled in i'm i'm well we'll just say i'm the icu provider right mm-hmm. and uh you know so you kind of give me a little handoff and i tell you uh, you know i'm pretty experienced at surgical icu mm-hmm. but i i don't have a whole lot of experience with flaps and stuff so you know uh, other than you know the basic stuff what do you want 
for me overnight, when do you want me to call you versus just sort of saying, hey, this is critical care and I can kind of do my thing and I know what to do. When do you want to be notified as a surgeon? So things that we get worried about. So um, one, you know, certainly if there's any type of like massive event, cardiac or mucus plugging, things like that. Um, But the one kind of the biggest ones are going to be, you know, for let's say we're using the near infrared spectroscopy. One of the things that we found actually, we did a um, prospective trial looking at can the can the near infrared kind of inform other things. Sometimes when that number starts to drop, um, that can be indicative of either there being a free flap issue or potentially like a hematoma. And so those are times when we would want to know about it. Um, in addition to that, you know, if there is a change in the audible signal as well, um, or neck inflation. So like, you know, if the neck all of a sudden looks a lot more edematous than it did, um, or if the patient starts complaining, like, I feel like I can't breathe as well. And so those are some things that can sometimes signal, okay, maybe is the trach in the wrong spot? Um, is the airway clogged for some reason? Um, and certainly if they're having an increased oxygen requirement, because, um, you know, that's one thing that uh, most of the things in ENT are not going to be pulmonary per se. Usually if there is an increased oxygen requirement, that's probably because there's something happening in the airway. And so, um, you know, net, NEBs are not necessarily going to help that. A chest x-ray is not going to tell us much because it may be more that it's an obstructive issue above. And so those are the ones we really want to know about because that's when we can have problems. When do you start worrying about like, oh man, I'm, I think we may have to go back to the operating mm-hmm. room. Um, so what are your triggers for that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, typically what will kind of alert us. So one, um, if the numbers on the near infrared go down, so, um, you know, patient came out of the operating room, it was about 65 or 70, all of a sudden it's dropping down to 50. Now it's kind of going a little bit down 40. That one would be one where I would, you know, bring up a handheld Doppler, change out the sensor, see if there's anything that's, you know, is it, is it just a monitoring issue? Um, and it would also scratch it. Um, and so usually that's, we'll have like somebody on call who comes in, they'll actually scratch it or I will come and scratch it um, to see if it bleeds. Um, and so if my, if it's not a monitoring issue, I can't seem to get stuff to bleed. Or if it looks like there's something pushing or causing pressure or compression on the free flap, then that's a trigger to go back. Um, I would say looking back at our prior data, the patients that had to go back most commonly were ones who are on some type of an anticoagulation preoperatively and we had to put them back on. Um, and so what often would happen is like they would uh, get swelling in the neck um, and then you'd see the number on the their, their monitor go down um, that was saying that the flap wasn't getting enough oxygenation. And so even though the audible signal didn't change and the flap didn't look that different, because we had the combination of the neck swelling plus the monitor going down that looked concerning for, for hematoma, those are, that's a patient that needs to go back. And, you know, especially in patients who have to be on anticoagulation, that's probably the, one of the biggest ones that, um, that we see, um, or, uh, or if it starts looking purple. So if, if, uh, the skin paddle starts looking like it's been sat on and bruised and starting to look like an eggplant, those are ones that we get really concerned with. Um, and those sometimes happen later. Um, so, uh, what we'll see is, you know, if someone's got congestion to that area, um, it can be related to like infection as well. And so, um, a lot of times we'll have drains nearby that kind of, if they're starting to look lucky or things like that. 
Um, typically, those are those tend to be later, though. Um, and so I would say in the acute phase, bleeding and hematoma are the biggest ones. Well, I'm glad you mentioned earlier we were talking about vasopressors because this this seems to be one of the common complications that we encounter with these patients is that they get hypotensive for mm-hmm, some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, maybe not even related to the surgery. They're just they're, they're sick just folks, sick people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll hear a lot of times, especially the residents will say, you know, no vasopressors. Well, okay, but I'm, but I'm going to give some fluid and okay, well, no fluid. I don't want edema either. Okay, right, well, right. then they're going to be hypotensive. Well, they can't be hypotensive because then my flap won't be perfused. Well, right. I don't know, you know, you got to pick one, right? Which is right, the, which right, is the right, right. least <laughs> evil here. So it sounds like the least evil is a little bit of vasopressors. Mm-hmm. So if I were going to, like, you know, put my my list of favorites, like from my, my most favorite vasopressor to least favorite. So um, I really like dopamine, but not everybody does because I know you have the other uh, potential um, uh, issues with that. So usually what we've been doing here is um, Neo is the next one. Um, and then after that, then they start adding on the other ones, but vasopressin is my, my least favorite. That is the one where my, I have my one anecdote where I w- watched it while it was still attached to the body on the leg, just turn off. And I was like, Oh, come back. Come back. Um, but there's really, the, but really, if you look at the data, it, it actually supports the use of them because if you think at the end of the day, if you're supporting heart function and, and squeeze that helps the whole body and the whole body needs to be there to be able to support the flap. Um, and so, you know, when possible, we want to use the most balanced that we can. So you don't want to go too dry also because, you know, that'll mm-hmm. pop the kidneys. But um, but having kind of a nice balanced approach to it, um, I think, is actually really helpful. Um, and then, again, if we can decrease blood loss with TXA and things like that intraoperatively, then that may also decrease the amount of blood loss, which then can subsequently also decrease, hopefully, issues with hypotension. Um, there's some really interesting data now coming out about intraoperative enteral feeding. So you are actually feeding patients while they are asleep. Um, I have not done that, but it seems like the outcomes are actually reasonable. I don't know if these patients have the most amazing um, lower esophageal sphincters to prevent that from all coming back up into the field. Um, but that is one thing that, you know, because these surgeries are so long, um, is something that people are, are looking into to kind of help improve outcomes. Um, so yeah, I think I think that that is probably one of the the interesting ones that we we always are kind of fighting. But so you know, I've changed institutions recently, and so here the um, the kind of standard has been to maintain maps um, above sixty five, and some of the surgeons here actually like having the maps in the eighties, um, and so they'll do that with with pressers. And um, uh, one of my partners, she's been doing free flaps for over twenty years, and she's really had no issues with it. So it's, it's hard to argue with, um, with us, with, you know, in, with that kind of a success rate. So I think part of it just depends on, you know, what are, what else are we doing to maintain the blood pressure? Like, are we, you know, looking at things like CVP? Um, and so that's one of the other things they instituted here was to check, um, with ultrasound just to kind of see what their, you know, their overall fluid level looked like. And so, and then kind of responding to that with fluid if needed. And then if not with, and so I think that's kind of helped really balance some of that out. 
So start off with a little little bit of fluid resuscitation and then pressors. And, and you would say phenylephrine or neosinephrine is your kind of first choice or dopamine. First choice dopamine, yeah. I, lo- I love yeah. dopamine, but, yeah. you know, if it's like Instagram, you hit the like, dopamine. <laughs> Patient's happy. Is like, there data on any of this, you know, comparing these in trials? Or this is really just purely anecdotes and, and maybe observational data sets, that kind of A thing. lot of my retrospective ones, um, there was one, where did I put it? I did have it pulled up a little bit ago. Um, there was actually a meta-analysis I was looking at the combination of all of them. Because as you said, I could easily see how data would be confounded by, you know, why did you use that particular mm-hmm. intervention? Well, the patient was sicker or whatever. Right, right. And that's the thing is that, you know, if you're looking at a specific patient population if, or if you sort of select out like what, which patients did poorly, well, these are the ones where they did poorly because they were invasive but it might be because they were also very sick from the baseline. There was one, like, so there's one out of uh, Emory. And that one did um, use of post-operative hypotension treatment protocol, where they got peripherally active vasopressors for the first three post-operative days with no flap failures. Um, and then there was a meta-analysis by Nuri et al. Um, and so they went through 13, 13 databases and then 15 studies that had complete data um, and found that vasopressor use actually reduced the relative risk of free fat pre-flap failure and did not affect rates of other adverse events. So, you know, I think part of it is, um, is judicious use, you know, so kind of keeping mm-hmm. in mind. And, and I think part of it may also depend on flap type. And so none of the papers really looked at that. Um, so with regards to things like, um, so flap choice. So we have, um, you know, the basically you can use any part of the body for a free flap practically, but um, looking at what are available. So we have fascio-cutaneous flaps, which are things like the radial forearm free flap, and that's skin, soft tissue, and blood vessels. So there's no muscle in that flap. Um, but it tends to be a very hardy flap because it's essentially like a piece of skin on a pedicle. Um, so it's a very robust flap. It's one of our workhorses. Um, then there are others that are called perforator flaps. And so that's something like an ultra-thin ALT, which is anterolateral thigh. Um, and that's based on the descending lateral circumflex. And that one, if you dissect it through all the muscle muscles, those are really, really small vessels. And so those can be a little bit more finicky. Um, and then the fibula flap actually also is a perforator flap. So the peroneal artery goes through the bone, gives off uh, blood supply to the periosteum, and then the perforators to the skin go through this posterior curl septum that then gives off blood vessels to the skin. And so you're relying on these like two millimeter perforators to feed skin, which can be a little bit more finicky. Um, some of the things that these are anecdotal that, that I've seen surgeons do is intraoperatively to use um, topical papaverin, topical lidocaine um, to prevent spasm during surgery, especially if patients are getting um, vasopressors. Um, I have had uh, a couple of patients where they've spasmed intraoperatively, but it could be that it wasn't even necessarily what, if they were getting a vasopressor, it just happens that that vessel tends to be spasmed. And so we'll use things like um, verapamil to go directly into the flap itself to decrease the spasm there. so, you know, I think, again, I think it, it, it kind of is a, a larger picture kind of pic- kind of idea where as long as it's a balanced, judicious use, um, and I think some of the prior, the prior kind of horror stories were on these patients that were very, very sick who weren't perfusing well to start with were requiring three or four pressors, and that's why their flap didn't do well. It wasn't necessarily because directly related to the presser, but because of the whole protoplasm. 
Mm-hmm. When the flaps actually fail, mm-hmm. not from bleeding, but uh, from hypoperfusion, and you know, maybe you go back, what is wrong with them? I mean, what is the mechanism for their failure? Like, what do you end up fixing? Gotcha, yeah. So um, the, it's interesting. It, it's a great question. So what we've, the, over the last few years, the number of acute failures has gone down substantially. So it used to be that the, um, the biggest concern people had was venous congestion, meaning the vein clotted off. Um, with newer techniques and monitoring, that number has gone down substantially. So now when we see a flap fail, it's usually, one, it's, it's like a weird zebra thing. So you might have someone who's a new factor five Leiden that no one knew about and they clotted it off and everyone's kind of like, well, fiddlesticks, like who would have known, right? Or proteins, you know, deficient, you know, something weird. Um, but the more common ones that we see are patients who've developed either like a salivary fistula where the connection between the mouth and the neck has opened up for whatever reason and saliva has gotten into the neck and there's an infection and then the vessels get sort of just covered in this goo and it breaks it down and it causes a clot locally. And so the majority of free flap failures now are what we call late failures. And so when you go in there, a lot of times those vessels are just kind of, they're gross. It looks like they've been partially digested by spit. They have, you know, infection in them. And usually you'll see clot. So the ones that we can usually save are, um, if it's it's something that happens in the acute phase, it's usually there's like a geometry issue. So, you know, you've got two tubes that you're hooking up together and something happens and it kinks. So as they're waking up, patient puts their neck over to the side or they fall asleep leaning their head on their ear and that can cause a kink in the vessel. Um, Because we have all of our little monitoring tools now, it does kind of help us know when that's happening. So it's kind of interesting, um, the the little near-infrared that I've used in the past. So you plop it on and it gives you every four seconds an updated number. And so um, we were closing one day and every time I would bring the skin down to close, the number would go down. I lift it up and it comes back up. So I was like, okay, well, clearly I need to do something to fix this geometry. And so I think a lot of the geometry issues are now f- not necessarily fixed, or pre- but, they're, but more of them are prevented. But that's one thing that can sometimes be fixed. You go in, oh, yeah, it's kinked. Let me just move this, this around. The geometry is bad. Um, and then acute clotting where if you can catch it early enough, you get them in. You go in just like as if, if you had someone who had like a clotted off um, uh, AV and S or, you know, AV fistula. Go in wash the clot out, put some TPA in, use like a little like Fogarty catheter, clean that out, um, and then put them on a heparin drip um, after you retie it. And so the, the early ones are usually the ones that we have a better, better luck at. It's the late ones that we usually can't get back. And then you end up having to remove the flap mm-hmm. and do something else. What, start over with another one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And thankfully, it's usually rare, but it does happen. Let's talk real quick about some airway issues. Mm-hmm. So you said like this mandibulectomy guy that we've been talking about, you would probably trach him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know a lot of times we'll we'll get these folks that'll be trached and they'll say the team will t- say, leave him asleep asleep, right? I want him like deep sedated tonight mm-hmm. and for the next like forty eight hours. What's um, that about? Yeah, yeah. It, a lot of it is surgeon preference. So mm-hmm. um some of the patients wake up wild, and those little monitors that I was telling you about are very, very tempting to a wild and uh, awake patient. And so um, and sometimes it really is surgeon-dependent. So um, 
if you look at some of the data out of Mount Sinai, they don't, well, at least previously, they were not tracking most of their patients. They were just leaving them asleep for the night. Um, but if you look at the literature subsequent to that, it was found that leaving patients asleep for too long actually decreases outcomes. So longer hospital stays, that kind of thing. So when possible, waking them up is good. But, it, you know, part of it kind of depends what time of the day it is, right? So if you're getting a patient at 10 p.m. and they've been sedated for the majority of the day and then all of a sudden you're waking them up after this in the middle of the night with all these other things on, the um, ICU delirium can hit fast. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, some people will leave patients asleep for as long as possible or if it were a very challenging anastomosis. So uh, when it's a patient who has a really, really terrible neck, meaning they've been irradiated, multiple surgeries, and you're literally got the last blood vessel left in their neck, you don't want to do anything that'll compromise that. And so um, you'll even see sometimes, uh, depending on where that is, um, I have a partner who will actually have certain neck positions that the patient has to stay in because if they move their head this way, then they noticed that the, the sound was gone in the operating room. And so they will be like, they have to have their head turned 25 degrees to the right, that kind of thing. Um, but for most primary free flaps, usually it's not as big of an issue. And like I said, when, when, when possible, waking them up can be helpful from a recovery standpoint and pulmonary toilet standpoint and edema and that kind of thing. So a lot of it just sort of giving them a little bit of chance to get healed better before they start moving around and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Okay. And to kind of like wake up a little bit more and not have the acute like, hey, by the way, here you are. You've got a new trach, a new nose tube, all these wires hanging out. Um, yeah, so that, that can, sometimes, uh, can, can sometimes help. Yeah. Now, in patients that you don't trach, so they're just orally intubated, mm -hmm. um, you know, the next morning you go in to assess them and there's no cuff leak. Yeah. So if there's no cuff leak, then usually we'll – continue the um, the decadron. So I usually do 8Q8 for 24, but if no cuff leak, we'll do 8Q8 for 48 and then reassess. Um, if they're still not having a cuff leak from there, then that's when I usually will discuss with the family. Maybe we need to consider this because they're still having quite a bit of edema and we don't want to leave them asleep with the tube in for too long because you get tracheal stenosis, all sorts of other issues. And also, you know, if they accidentally get extubated, um, and the tube has to go in emergently, depending on where the reconstruction is, that can really, you know, be traumatic to the tissue. And so if it's looking like, oh, this is going to take a lot longer than we anticipated, then I usually will talk with the family. Let's get them set up for the trach. That will make it, you know, much more straightforward. Okay. Now, obviously, as a critical care folks, we do sort of our own assessment of readiness for extubation. But is there anything from a surgical standpoint, other than the lack of a cuff leak, uh, that you would say, hey, I know they look good, but I want to leave them intubated right now? Um, I think one of the big ones is um, if the anterior part of the tongue is looking really swollen, even though they have a cuff leak. So, um, or if they're having like a lot of ooziness in the mouth, so blood and then tongue, um, or if they were a really, really difficult intubation from the get-go. Now, typically, if they're really, really difficult intubation from the get-go, I'm going to be like, let's treat them. We put Drake in that. That would be fine. Um, but, you know, the, those are the ones that, you know, if it's looking like they're, they're just – if it's not completely perfect, um, then usually I'll wait another day because that – you know, waiting one more day is not going to be the um, – necessarily the, the end-all, be-all, especially if it's like, like a robot patient who doesn't necessarily need a trach. They're just a little bit more swollen than I'd like them to be. Um, 
And so that, that'll usually be the thing, but yeah, it's usually the anterior tongue swelling. Um, that's, that's not soft. Um, so it should be, the tongue should be very, very soft and the, um, the kind of just under the chin should be really soft, like the submental area. Okay. And are there patients that you want to be present for extubation or um, are you pretty much okay with the ICU team extubating once you've said, yeah, it's okay? Yeah. For the most part, I'm, I'm usually pretty happy with extubation and unless like, for instance, I had, I had a robot patient that, um, had a reinforced tube and then post-operatively I went to exchange his tube for a, like as a regular one. And it was really challenging for me to get. And so that patient, I made a note to, in his chart, like you know, kind of challenging airway from, from this standpoint. And he was one that I wanted to be present for. Um, so it's kind of by a case by case basis, but for the most part, typically, you know, the most of the robot patients by design have, easily accessed airways because that's the only reason we can fit the robot in, right? Um, but for the most part, most of these patients can be extubated with ICU team because you guys have more fancy goods than a lot of times we even have. Last thing I wanted to mention, this is really nothing to do with their ICU care or anything else, but um, I know this comes up because if you've not seen these patients post-op before, mm-hmm. um, they can be scary looking, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of disfigurement and uh, I know a lot of people have said to me, you know, nurses and RTs and even providers have said like, that they just, they look horrible. Like what's the, what's the healing? What's like the healing these? like? Yeah. And, like, um, and, they... and it's, in, yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. And, um, and it, it really, the funny thing is the immediate post-op really always looks a lot worse than when they come back. Um, and so I actually, uh, one of my partners here has a study, it's called the bright study and it's to help patients with their post-operative kind of appearance and like how they feel about themselves. But we do a lot of contouring. Um, so one of the biggest things that we focus on is after the, after the tissue is healed, because that's the hard part, right? Once the hard part is done, we do a lot of liposuction, um, prosthetics. Um, some people are even doing some hair transplants as well. So like for making brows and things like that. Um, and one of the biggest things that I've become really um, appreciative of is I have a maxillofacial prosthodontist who will even make temporary prostheses for patients um, just so they can feel more like themselves. So, for instance, we had someone who had to take their entire nose off, um, and he actually makes a bandage that looks like a nose. And so that way they, even though, you know, they, they change it out and things like that, and they're going to get a prosthetic. It's like they still have that ability to be able to go out, you know, to the drugstore or something like that. But it is something that we're very aware of because we're getting better at curing cancer. So we want people to be able to also go out and and live their lives as well because you don't want the treatment to be worse than the disease. Um, And so, yes, there's a lot of focus on sort of that secondary rehabilitation, reconstruction. But the nice thing is with most of those, they're outpatient. and so I, I think it is it it is kind of uh, interesting because a lot of the junior residents who don't come to um, don't they don't get to see the patients you know on the other side of things are like wow what do we just do mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah no that's a good it's a good question um, because it does it starts out really big and, and for instance I had a, a patient recently that we had to take a big chunk of of scalp bone 
um, hair, like hair bearing scalp and she'd already had multiple other spots. So there was nothing we could put over there and end up having to put a piece of latissimus muscle with skin. And, um, her, she was, she's a very, she's this absolutely gorgeous, you know, young woman. And she said, Oh, I have a, she's like, it's okay. I have a C cup on my head and it'll get better. And then I saw her back more recently. We did a little debulking. She's like, yeah, I'm down to a training bra now on my head. And, um, and so, you know, part of it is, is talking patients through the expectations up front, but it can be hard. It's, 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 if you're not expecting things, it's not like you don't see these people every day. And so, you know, we try to, to mitigate expectations when we can, but it can be really challenging. Um, and you know, the, um, unfortunately there should be more with regards to psychological support in the hospital and outside. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Marky has an amazing team that really does kind of try and address things up front at the clinical side. Um, and I think it would be nice to do something on the inpatient side as well. And, um, you know, we have pastoral care and other therapies that can be sometimes helpful. Um, but it, it is, it is something that, you know, I think we need to to work on and do better. Um, I think in the breast cancer world, there's been a really good sort of recognition of that type of, of support. Um, and I think in head and neck, we need to work a little bit more on that for sure. Brandon, do you have anything uh, you want to add in? I think this has been awesome. I mean, it's such a, um, can be a confusing area for people who don't, I mean, more than anything else, else almost like the operative process here is really mysterious to those of us who are not in the OR. So it's really helpful to just know what it's all about. If you've never seen these kind of patients, it's uh, almost more than any other surgical procedure. It seems like magic. I mean, mm -hmm. people come out looking like they had surgery, but you know, you can't even see that much externally. But I mean, it's if they tell you what they did, it's like. Um, you know, it's like when somebody needs to unpack a box, so they just take everything mm -hmm. out and they rearrange it and put it all back in. Um, so th this in plastic surgery is just like weird <laughs> to me. But uh, I get one mm -hmm. question. You know, if you do place a trach for mm -hmm. these procedures, unlike most of the trachs we do, which are for respiratory failure, um, if you didn't do something like a laryngectomy, in which case you're probably never removing it, when are these coming out? So it depends on the swelling. So um, some patients will take them out after like three days. So it's, it's really just to get access um, or, you know, if they, um, if it's something that like, you know, uh, a kind of a weirder one that we'll sometimes see is in older patients who are getting like an orbital regeneration, even though we're not operating in the mouth, a lot of these patients just take a little bit longer to wake up. And so um, they have a little more risk of aspiration and things like that. And so, but typically if we can, and their swelling's gone down sufficiently and they have um, capping trials, we try to get them out before they go home just one less thing to have to worry with and heal from. Um, and so uh, it is It is something that we work towards to kind of say, okay, can we get the trach out? And then usually we'll have them follow up and do PO trials and then say, okay, can we also get you to just be eating all by mouth? What's the efficiency, that kind of thing. So otherwise the, the process of, of kind of weaning and then decandling the trach is largely like with any patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had a few where we did like ultra fast, where we went to like a cuffless trach right away and then like day two. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of times having that trach is nice just to kind of get them through that cute period when they just have lots of gunk and goo kind of coming down and we just need to suction it all out. So that way they don't have to elicit as big of a cough up into the mouth where it's all rearranged. I think this has been really, like Brandon said, really fascinating. This is very mysterious surgery even <laughs> for those of us who take care of them post-op. Um, so thanks for, thanks for being with us here. 
And my pleasure. And, Thanks for having me. Um, uh, everybody, again, you know, what you've heard here today is just our thoughts and should not be construed as the official stance of any of the folks we work for. Uh, and of course, this is not medical advice. This is just for informational educational purposes. And hopefully you're not basing all of your treatment decisions on what you've heard here. So thanks for joining us and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye.